Heavenly Father, thank you for another day of life and health and strength. Thank you for your church, your people who love you and serve you across the globe. Thank you for your word in the book of Hebrews that teaches us about the greatness of your son and how we need to be thankful for the salvation found in his blood. Be with us in this study, Father. Be with us as we continue to try to get through this this crisis we are experiencing in our country and around the globe. Bless us, Father. Keep us strong and in your loving care. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to thank all of you once again for tuning in to another Bible class video. We are studying through the book of Hebrews, even though we are unable to, to meet at this time for Bible classes as the Monta Vista Church of Christ. We've been trying to stay on schedule with our classes and, and our regular Bible class schedule. If we were able to assemble together, we would have been making our way through the book of Hebrews. Particularly by this time, we would have been on Hebrews chapter 8, and so we're doing these videos to keep with that schedule even though we are unable to, to be together and, and, and meet together as God's people. And so we are in Hebrews chapter 8 in this video. I do realize that for many of you who are watching this, you uh, have been confined uh, to your homes. Uh, you are unable to, to meet with your brethren at this time. And I know that can be somewhat depressing and very uh, discouraging uh, for me personally, I will never take for granted again uh, the ability to just meet with my brothers and my sisters in Christ to worship God. I, I miss that immensely, immensely, and I just can't wait to be back again with my church family, and I'm pretty sure you feel the same way. Uh, it can be pretty depressing uh, not being able to meet regularly with our brethren, but I do hope and pray uh, that these videos we have been doing from Hebrews have been encouraging to you. I hope you've been able to be refreshed from these things, that you've been able to grow from these things we've studied, and I also hope you've been able to uh, study these things with your, with your kids, study with your spouse. I just hope they've encouraged you, uh, because I certainly have been encouraged being able to teach these lessons. In chapter 7, and we studied chapter 7 in our last video. If you remember, in that chapter, the writer reminds us of the topic concerning Melchizedek. He reminds us of some things concerning Melchizedek. And his point in talking about Melchizedek in the previous chapter is he wants us to understand that even though Melchizedek is a mysterious Old Testament character, He's very similar to, to Jesus in many ways. His priesthood is very similar to the priesthood of Jesus. You see, the whole point of Hebrews 7 is to emphasize how Jesus is the high priest for God's people under, under the new covenant, and his priesthood is not in the order of the priesthood of the Levites under the old law. Instead, the priesthood of Jesus is in the order of, or it is similar to, the priesthood of Melchizedek. Jesus has a priesthood like that of Melchizedek. We went into detail concerning that last time, and so if you want to go through those details, please see the previous video. 
But there were four things, four things that the writer mentions in chapter 7 to really drive this point home. First, in talking about Melchizedek, if you remember, the writer makes the point that Melchizedek was such a great man, even though we don't know a lot about him, but he was such a great man that he was even greater than Abraham. Melchizedek was actually greater than the father of the nation of Israel. Melchizedek was a priest, and he was a king of the city of Salem. And he also received tithes from Abraham. Abraham paid him tithes after Abraham was successful in the war against the kings of the east. And Melchizedek also blessed Abraham. So Melchizedek because of those two specific things, demonstrated that he was greater than Abraham. And not only was Melchizedek greater than Abraham because Abraham paid tithes to him, but the second point the Hebrew writer makes is Melchizedek also demonstrated that he was greater than Abraham because Abraham's descendants also paid tithes to him. Remember the Levites the Levites who would be priests under the old law, their father was Abraham. Abraham was the beginning of the Levitical priesthood of that lineage. And even while they were in his loins, even while the Levites were still in Abraham's DNA, because Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, in that sense, the Levites were also paying tithes to Melchizedek. And so the point that the Hebrew writer is making is not only is Melchizedek greater than Abraham, but he's, he's also greater than the descendants of Abraham. His priesthood is also superior to the Levitical priesthood. And so that's the second thing he mentions. And then thirdly, he makes this point. He makes the point that not only is Melchizedek's priesthood superior to the priesthood of the Levites, but Jesus' priesthood is also superior to the, to the priesthood of the Levites. Jesus is also a far superior high priest than any high priest under the old law. He says that unlike the high priest under the old law, Jesus, as the high priest today, he's able to serve as, as a high priest forever. Remember, the descendants of Aaron, they could only be high priests while they were alive. Once they died, they were no longer priests. That's not the way it works with Jesus. Jesus will never die as he sits at the right hand of God. Jesus will be a high priest forever. Secondly, also unlike the high priest under the old covenant, Jesus is a, is a perfect high priest. He has no weaknesses, no flaws, no sins. He never committed one sin in his life. And so when he died on the cross for her, our sins, his, his sacrifice was sufficient for all time. It was a sacrifice one time for all time. Unlike those Levitical priests who had to offer animal sacrifices every single day, both for themselves and for the sins of the people, Jesus is a perfect high priest because he doesn't offer animals up to God. Instead, he offered himself up to God. 
He offered himself as a sacrifice, not for his sins, because he had no sins, but he offered himself as a sacrifice for our sins. He did that one time, and it was sufficient for all time. And so that makes him superior to the high priest and all the priests under the Levitical system. And then thirdly, he makes the point that Jesus, Jesus is a far superior high priest because he serves as a high priest over a far superior covenant. You see, Jesus, as he serves as our high priest, he doesn't serve as a high priest under the old covenant. He doesn't serve as a high priest under the old law. Remember, Jesus could not have been a high priest under the old law because God specifically said that the high priests were to come from the tribe of Levi, and Jesus came from the tribe of Judah. He did not come from the tribe of Levi, and so therefore Jesus could not have served as a high priest under the old law. If he had been a high priest under the old law, he would have sinned because God again specifically said that the high priests were not to come from anywhere else but Levi. And so if Jesus could not serve as a high priest under the old law, how can he be a high priest today? How can he be our high priest? Well, in chapter 7, the writer makes the point that the reason why Jesus can serve lawfully as the high priest of God's people today is because God has changed the covenant. God has changed the law. While Jesus could not serve as a high priest under the old law, he can serve as a high priest under the new law. He can serve as a high priest under the, under the new covenant, and he does serve as a high priest under the new covenant. Under the new covenant, it doesn't matter that Jesus came from the tribe of Judah. This is a new covenant. It is a new law, and God specifically appointed him to be the one and only high priest of God's people because he is God's son, and his sacrifice for our sins is sufficient for all time. And so because there is a change in the covenant, therefore Jesus can serve as the high priest of God's people and praise God for that. Now, this particular issue of the New Covenant, which is a big New Testament issue, this issue will continue on in the previous or in the, in the next chapter, in chapter 8. But before we get into chapter 8, I think it is important, since this is a smaller chapter, that we just pause, that we just pause for a moment or two and just kind of rehearse where we are. We're over halfway finished with the book of Hebrews. And believe me, my brain is about to explode after studying this book over the past few weeks. This is a, a deep book, and it has challenged me in ways that I have never been challenged before. It is a very deep book, and I'm very thankful for the challenge that, has, that it has given me spiritually over the past few weeks. We're over halfway finished with this book, and I think before we go any further, we got to pause and just remind ourselves of what we've learned so far. I think this is a good place to kind of just pause and catch our breath because an important transition will take place here in chapter 8. And so, what have we learned so far? Well, remember the theme of this book. Remember the theme of the book of Hebrews is Jesus is greater. 
Jesus is superior to everything that is found under the old law. Chapter Chapters 1 and 2, he is superior to angels and the Old Testament prophets. Chapter 3, he is superior to Moses, the great servant in the family of God under the old law, the great lawgiver and deliverer. Jesus is greater than Moses. He's also greater than Joshua, the one who led Israel to rest by bringing them into the promised land, according to what we found in chapter 4. He's also greater than Aaron, chapter 5. He also serves over a superior priesthood, chapter 7. He also is the mediator of a superior and better covenant, also found in chapter 7. And this thought will continue through chapter 8. He's superior to Aaron, to angels, to prophets, to Moses, to Joshua. Jesus is superior to everything found under the old law. That's the point of the book. That's what we've studied so far. Now, in chapter 8, we're going to dig a little deeper into this, this covenant instituted by Jesus. Up to this point in the book, the book is really focused on Jesus, the superiority of Jesus. But in chapter 8, it's going to be somewhat a transition as we're going to find a transition from talking about Jesus to talking about his covenant. And I know those two things are closely linked together, but I don't want you to miss that transition. We're going to go from talking about Jesus specifically to talking about his covenant. It would only make sense that if Jesus is superior to everything found under the old law, that his covenant would also be superior to the Old Testament covenant. And so we're really going to dig into the covenant that Jesus instituted when he died on the cross in this chapter. Since Jesus is superior, that means his covenant is also superior. And so let's begin by reading the first five verses. Hebrews 8, verse 1. Now, the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, so it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. Now, if he were on the earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, to the law, who serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things, just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle. For see, he says, that you make all the things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. Okay, here in these five verses, what the Hebrew writer does here is he just emphasizes the main point of the previous chapter. This is kind of his wrap-up of what he talked about in the previous section. Remember, the previous section talked about the priesthood of Jesus. It talked about how Jesus is a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. It talks about how Jesus' priesthood is superior to the priesthood of the Levites. That's what chapter 7 was primarily about. And here, in, in these verses we just read, 
the Hebrew writer just wants to drive that point home. In verses 1 and 2, he makes the point that Jesus is a superior high priest. He says the main point that I have been trying to, to, to make over the last few minutes is Jesus is a greater high priest. He is a superior high priest to all of the Levites. He's a superior high priest than, than those that came from Aaron. Why? Well, notice verse 1 says that the reason why Jesus is a superior high priest because, number one, unlike the Levitical priest, Jesus has been exalted to the right hand of God. Jesus has actually entered into the most holy place. He's in heaven. He's sitting at God's right hand. He's reigning as king of kings and lord of lords. He is superior because of his exaltation. And then secondly, according to verse 2, he is a superior high priest because he ministers in a better sanctuary. He ministers currently in a better sanctuary, unlike the Levitical priest who ministered in an earthly sanctuary, Unlike the descendants of Aaron who ministered in an earthly temple, Jesus ministers in the heavenly temple. Jesus ministers in the heavenly sanctuary, in the true sanctuary of God, in a sanctuary that has been pitched not by the hands of men like what you found in the days of Moses. Instead, the sanctuary that Jesus ministers in ministers in is one that has been erected by God himself. God himself. There the Hebrew writer is talking about the spiritual sanctuary. He's talking about the spiritual holy place. He's talking about heaven. Unlike the Levitical priest who ministered in an earthly sanctuary, Jesus currently ministers in the heavenly sanctuary. He is in the true most holy place. He's in heaven at the very right hand of God, serving as the high priest of God's people. And so Jesus is a far greater high priest because where he ministers is in the true sanctuary, the spiritual sanctuary, one that has not been constructed by the hands of men, but instead it has been constructed by the hands of God. He's in heaven ministering as the, as the great high priest. And so that's the first two verses. When you look at verses 3 through 5 of this section, there are more contrasts given between the two priesthood, between the, the priesthood of Jesus and the Levitical priesthood. In verse 3, he makes the point that, by, that, that while both systems, that is both the old law system and the new law system, while both systems require that their high priest offer up gifts and sacrifices unto God, Jesus' system is a far greater system because, because of his sacrifices more, is far more superior. Under the old law, the Levitical priests, they offered up animal sacrifices, bulls, goats, doves, several other kinds of animals. But under the new covenant, Jesus does not have to offer up bulls and, and goats and doves every single day. Instead, he offered up himself to God. He offered up himself as the lamb of God, as one who was both man and God at the same time, and yet he never, ever sinned. Jesus offered up his very life to the Father, 
And because of that, his sacrifice is far more superior than the sacrifices offered by the Levitical priest. And so Jesus offers up a superior sacrifice. But then in verse number four, we also see that while both covenants, the old and the new, came from God, they both had different requirements as to how one could qualify to be a priest. The, those who served as priests under, those, under each covenant had different qualifications as far as the lineages in which they were to come from. Under the old law, you had to come from the tribe of Levi. Jesus could not have served as a priest under the old law because he came from Judah. He did not come from Levi, but under the new law, God doesn't, doesn't look at physical lineage. He doesn't look at physical requirement. Instead, he looks at spiritual requirement. He looks at the fact that Jesus is his son, that he is the spiritual lamb of God, and the fact that he has been exalted to the right hand of God. Under the, under the old law, it was on the basis of physical requirement. Under the new law, it's on the basis of spiritual requirement. The fact that Jesus is the son of God, that qualifies him to be able to serve as our high priest under the new covenant. And then in verse 5, the Hebrew writer makes the point that while both of these covenants and both of these priesthood did come from God, while the old law did come from God, it was ordained by God, and it did serve his purpose, while that is, all those things are true, the writer makes the point that everything that was being done under the old law with the Levitical priest was merely a shadow of what was going to be done through Jesus later on. In other words, it wasn't to be, it never was intended by God to be the final religion for man. The old law was never intended by God to be the final law given to mankind. It was merely a shadow of what was going to be accomplished through Jesus. Everything the Levitical priests did, all the, the ministering they did in the tabernacle and the temple, it merely foreshadowed what Jesus was going to do when he came and died on the cross and ministered to the people of God under the, new, under the new covenant. One was a shadow. One was the real thing. That's the point. And we have the real thing. If we're Christians, if we're disciples, we're not part of the shadow. The Old Testament Israelites, they were part of the shadow. The Old Testament Levitical priests, they were part of the shadow. We're part of the real thing. We have the true religion, the religion that God has set up to bring all men and women unto himself. Through Jesus Christ as our high priest, we all have access to God. We're part of the real thing, not the shadow. And so in verses 1 through 5, there's just more contrast given between the superiority of of Jesus Christ in comparison to the Levitical priesthood. Now, the chapter break should be right there, but it's not. But, but let's now go to verse number 6. We'll read verses 6 through 13, say a few comments, and, and then that's going to be the class. Verse 6, after making the point that everything that was found under the old law was merely a shadow of things to come. He says in verse 6, But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, by as much as he is also the mediator 
of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would not have been an occasion sought for a second. For finding fault with him, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen. And everyone his brothers saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me from the least to the greatest of them, for I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Verse 13, when he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete, but whatever is becoming obsolete is growing old and is ready to disappear. All right, this right here, beginning with verse 6, really marks an important transition in, in, in the book. Whereas the first verses that we have studied of this book deal with Jesus specifically, starting here and going really throughout the next couple of chapters, the emphasis will be on the covenant instituted by Jesus. In verse number six, the writer gives us reasons why the new covenant is superior to the old covenant. Notice again in verse number six, in, re in reference to Jesus, he says that Jesus has a more excellent ministry than the ministry of the Levites. He says that he is the mediator of a better covenant. What covenant is he referring to there? Well, he's talking about how the new covenant is a better covenant than the old one. Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant, and the new covenant is superior. Why is it superior? Well, at the end of verse 6, he says that one of the reasons why is because it offers better promises. It is founded upon better promises. There are better promises found under the new covenant than there were under the old. And someone says, what were those promises? Well, I want you to think about that. You think about that for the next few days, and we're going to be talking more about that in our, in, in our next couple of classes. But for now, just know that there are better promises found under the new covenant than there are found under the old covenant. In verse number 7, he makes the point that the first covenant, that is the Old Testament covenant given to Israel at Mount Sinai, that was not a faultless covenant. That was not a faultless law or testament. If it was a faultless law or covenant or testament, God would not have replaced it. The fact that there is a new covenant that has been instituted by Jesus clearly shows us that there were problems with the old one. The old one was not sufficient enough to bring men and women to God. In fact, he says, beginning in verse number 8, that the replacing of the old covenant with the new covenant was foretold at least 600 years in advance. It was actually prophesied or foretold 
by the prophet Jeremiah as he was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. In verses 8, beginning with verse number 8 of this chapter and going to the end of verse 12, the Hebrew writer quotes from the Old Testament. He quotes prophecy from the Old Testament. Specifically, he quotes from Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. He quotes from the book of Jeremiah. You know, in addition to reading from the New Testament this year, one of our goals as a church family is to read the whole New Testament. Well, in addition to, to doing that, another thing that I'm doing in my, personal, uh, in my personal time, in my free time, is I'm also reading through the book of Jeremiah right now. I'm spending some time in the book of Jeremiah, and Jeremiah is a very powerful book. It's a long book, but it is very, very rich. In fact, the book of Jeremiah, is it, it really deals with two main issues. It deals with the judgment of God and the restoration of Israel. Much of the book has to do with the fact that God sends Jeremiah to the people of Israel to let them know that they're going to go into captivity. They're going to go into Babylonian captivity. God's going to punish them. He's going to leave their land desolate for 70 years because they got involved in idolatry and they rejected him as the one true and living God. Because of Israel's idolatry, God sends Jeremiah to the people of Judah specifically to let them know you're going into Babylonian captivity. But even though you're going to go into Babylonian captivity, you're not going to be there forever. You're going to be there for 70 years. After 70 years are completed, I will bring you back to this land. I will bring you back to Jerusalem. I will bring you back to Israel. I'm going to bring all of the tribes back in some way to Israel. I'm going to bring them back because you're my people, but also because God says, I want to fulfill my promises to Abraham. I want to fulfill the promise that I made that through his descendants, through Israel, I'm going to bring somebody into the world to make it possible for all people to be adopted into my family. God's going to preserve Israel because of the promise of the Messiah. In fact, these verses here that are quoted in Hebrews 8 are part of the messianic prophecies in Jeremiah. I mean, yes, Jeremiah speaks of judgment from God and the restoration of Israel, but it also has some messianic prophecies. By messianic prophecies, we mean that in the book of Jeremiah, the prophet, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, foretells a day in which a Messiah was going to come into the world and he was going to, he was going to bless all people. He was going to make it so that all people can be adopted into God's family. In fact, part of the Messiah's work, according to what Jeremiah says here, is he would institute a new covenant. He would institute a new covenant. Here, the Hebrew writer is reminding his audience of the prophecy Jeremiah gave of a day when God would establish a new covenant with his people. Verse 8, Behold, days are coming says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant. I'm going to institute a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And it's not going to be like the covenant 
which I made with their forefathers. It's not going to be like that covenant that I gave them once I brought them out of Egypt and brought them to Mount Sinai. It's not going to be like that covenant that they rejected over and over again throughout their history. God says that he was going to institute a new covenant through the Messiah. And there are going to be some things that are going to be different about this new covenant. In fact, the writer mentions four things that will be different about the new covenant in comparison to the old one. So I want you to write these down. First, he says in verse number 10, the new covenant, under this new covenant or this new law, the law of God would be on the hearts and the minds of God's people. It would be in our hearts. That doesn't mean that we wouldn't be able to open up our our Bibles, and read about God's law. But, but it means that God's law wouldn't just be here, but it will be primarily where it's supposed to be, in our hearts, immersed deeply in our hearts. And if you stop and think about it, isn't that what God has always wanted? I mean, hasn't God always wanted our hearts? He wants our hearts. In Matthew chapter 22, if you remember over in Matthew 22, and this was the way God even wanted it to be with Israel, but they absolutely failed him when it came to this. Matthew 22, 37, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. God, even under the old law, he wanted the hearts of his children. Reminds me of the rich young ruler. In Matthew 19, remember, there was a rich young ruler who came to Jesus and he started essentially bragging about how he had kept all of the aspects of the old law. He honored his father and his mother. He didn't murder. He didn't covet. He said, Jesus, I've kept all of the aspects of the law from the time I was a little boy. And Jesus doesn't say he was wrong about that, but then Jesus told him, well, if you really want to if you really want eternal life, if that's what you really want, then there's one thing left for you to do. You go sell all that you have, you give it to the poor, and then you come and follow me. That's what Jesus told the rich young ruler to do. And do you remember how he responded to that? Remember, he responded to that commandment by being grieved. He was sad. He didn't want to do what Jesus said there because he had many great possessions. You see, even though he had kept the law, he still had, had not given God the main thing that God wanted from him, and that was his heart. You see, if his heart was really with God, then he would have had no problem selling all of his possessions and coming follow, and following Jesus. The whole point of that exercise that Jesus went through with him there was, it was to demonstrate that this rich, rich young ruler, while he had done some good things, while he had technically kept the law, his heart still wasn't with God. His heart was still in love with his stuff more than his Lord. That's the point. The rich young ruler may have been obedient that his heart wasn't with God. And that's the main thing that God wants. God wants our hearts. You see, when our hearts are really with God, then the obedience will naturally follow. Under the new covenant, 
It wasn't going to be like what you find with the rich young ruler. People saying, well, let me go through this checklist. I didn't do this. I didn't do this. I did do that. It wasn't going to be like that under the new covenant. God says my people are going to finally give me the main thing I want from them. And that's, that's their hearts. Their hearts are going to be immersed in my law. My law won't just be on paper. It's going to be in their hearts. Secondly, another difference between the old and the new is under the new, God is really going to be the God of his people. The, the Hebrew writer said, if you go back to, to verse number 10, he says, I will be their God and they shall be my people. That language denotes a close and intimate relationship. Close fellowship between God and his people. Again, this is something that God wanted with Israel under the old covenant. In Exodus chapter 6, and Exodus chapter 6 and verse number 7, in Exodus 6 and verse 7, before even bringing them out of Egyptian bondage, God says, then I will take you for my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Notice how even with Old Testament Israel, God really wanted to be their God. He wanted to be the sole focus of their lives. He wanted to have a close and intimate relationship with these people, but they absolutely failed him when it came to this. They got involved in idolatry over and over again, but under the New Testament law, when it comes to New Testament Israel, God says, we're going to be different. God says, my people under the new law, they're not going to be like Israel in the Old Testament. I will truly be their God. I will truly be first place in their lives. No longer will my people have idols before me. They're going to be faithful and loyal. And then thirdly, in verse 11, another contrast is under the new law, God says that his people will truly know him. They're, they're truly going to know his holiness. They're truly going to know what he requires and his standards and about his love and his grace. The Old Testament of Israel, they didn't truly know God. I mean, they knew God existed. They knew God was real, but they didn't truly know God. They didn't truly respect God. They didn't truly grasp the wisdom of God and the justice of God. They were not truly in fellowship with God as they were supposed to be. That's the way it was under the old law. But under the new law, God says his people are truly going to know him. They're going to understand his grace and his love and his mercy. They're going to understand his justice. They're going to be all united together when it comes to respecting him. And then fourthly, under the, under the new law, his people will receive true forgiveness. True forgiveness because their sins will have been washed away by the blood of Jesus. God says, I will remember their sins no more. What a rich concept, brothers and sisters. What a rich concept. I mean, that is so different than how we, we operate. You know, so often when, when people do us wrong and they come asking for forgiveness, we'll say, I, I forgive you, but we'll bring up the the." The issue over and over again. Whenever they make us mad, we'll bring it up and, and rub it in their face. So often we'll, for, we'll forgive, but we don't, really we don't really forget. It's not what God says he does when it comes to his people under the new law. 
God says not only will he forgive us, but he'll remember our sins no more. That means that he won't bring them up on the judgment day. He's not going to rub our face in our sins. He says, I'm going to forget them. It's like they never happened. I'm going to choose to have amnesia when it comes to your sins. What a great blessing. What a great blessing that when I stand before God on the judgment day, if I seek his forgiveness while I'm alive on this earth, I don't have to worry about God bringing up my sins, my many sins, when I stand before him. And so those are the four contrasts that are given in this section between the new and the old covenant. And then in verse 13, he concludes the chapter by saying the new covenant has made the old one obsolete. The old covenant is obsolete, and because it is obsolete, he says at the end that it is growing old and is ready to disappear. That technically took place when Jesus died on the cross for our sins. When Jesus died on the cross for our sins, the new covenant came into effect. It came into effect, and that's what we live by today. The old covenant has grown old. It's disappeared. It's gone. And now we're under the new. The new is far superior. The new is the one that makes us and brings us to God as his people today. And so chapter 8 is about how Jesus is a superior high priest over a superior covenant. And the points of application I want to leave you with are this. Don't make the mistake of trying to live under the old law. Don't make that mistake. You know, so often... There are people who try to go back to the old law and they say, well, I, I do this and I don't do this in my life because, and then they quote an Old Testament scripture. But so many religious people, they fail to understand that while the Old Testament law did come from God, while it is worthy of our study, while it did serve a very good purpose, it is not what Christians are under today. It is not what Christians are under today and have ever been under. Christians are, don't, are not obligated to live by the old law. Instead, we're obligated to live by the new law. In fact, Paul says throughout the book of Galatians that if we do try to live by the old law, we've made the death of Jesus and his covenant absolutely meaningless. And so study the old law. Learn from the old law, but understand that if you're a Christian, you live, God expects you to live by the standard of the new law. And then secondly, do your best to be as faithful to God as possible. Do your best to be as faithful to the new covenant as possible. Be obedient in your actions, but even more importantly, make sure that God's law is in your heart. Make sure you know it. Make sure it's deeply immersed in your heart. Make sure you render your heart to God. Because your heart is the main thing that God wants. Be different than Israel. Israel failed to give God their hearts, and that is why they constantly disobeyed him. But if we give God our hearts, the obedience, it will naturally follow. And then thoroughly, never take God's forgiveness for granted. Yes, we may be going through some difficult times right now as we are confined in our homes for the most part. But God's forgiveness is still available. God's forgiveness is still available to me and to you. We serve a God who will forgive us and remember our sins no more 
when we humbly seek his forgiveness. And if God never did anything else for us again, that blessing right there is far more than we deserve. And so that's the end of this study. I know that was a lot to consider, but I hope this study will bless you and help you. And next time, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 9, and we're going to be talking about how Jesus' sanctuary is a far better sanctuary than that that was found under the old law.